Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. So we're often running into a new year. The Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column says it's hard to know whether the global economy is at the start, the middle, or the end of a cycle. What doesn't seem to matter to credit investors where Bloomberg has characterized demand as voracious. Sounds like just another January to me. All right, this week, our three things are, one, the rise in problem loans at banks. Should we be worried? Two, geopolitical risks. The radar is getting crowded. And three, KBRA Analytics default forecast. We've got a non-consensus view. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. Mounting problem loans. By the time you hear this, you will have seen and heard about Q4 earnings from J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, both obviously great proxies for the broad economy. How consumers are doing, how businesses are doing, how they've done, and what their prospects are. Earnings conference calls will focus on the usual topics that equity analysts obsess over. Growth of net interest income and expenses, trading results, prospects for stock buybacks. Having looked at banks for longer than most, I'm here to tell you that not enough attention is directed to the risk side of the equation. And it should surprise no one that loan losses, the risk side, are what makes banks turbo cyclicals. Leave it to the credit folks to focus on the downside. The fact of the matter is, trends in loan quality are really what drives earnings ultimately and valuation, especially at this part of the credit cycle. Now, loan quality risk is disclosed by the banks in three ways that reflect how current and expected economic trends are impacting the quality of the loan book. Specifically, we'll get net charge-offs or losses on deteriorated loans, non-performing loans, which are deteriorating loans, where typically the borrower has not made a payment in at least 90 days, and the loan loss provision, which is an income statement line item of funds expensed out of current income that is set aside for projected future net charge-offs. Now, this issue did come into focus this week, courtesy of a piece in the Financial Times, where a headline bellowed, Largest U.S. Banks Set to Log Sharp Rise in Bad Loans. The piece highlights that consensus estimates for the four largest U.S. banks, that's J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup, are calling for non-performing loans to rise to $24 billion dollars, That's $6 billion higher than the year-ago figure. Sounds like a lot. And a 33% jump in a bad thing is not a good thing. But a little perspective here is important. These four banks have nearly $4 trillion in loans. That means $24 billion in non-performers equals 0.6% of loans. Now applying Charlie Munger's favorite invert approach, that means 99.4% of loans are in good shape. That is extraordinary. We start to get a bit worried when non-performers get to 3%. Now, how about the loan loss provision? For all U.S. banks, that hit 8% of total revenue for the latest 12 months and in September. The longer-term annual average is around 10%. And for context, in the GFC, the loan loss provision hit 35% of revenue. So we have a ways to go before that starts to bite. To be clear, the trend here is not our friend. But the non-performing ratio and the loan loss provision are just two more things that are normalizing. And given the de-risking phenomena banks have undergone post the GFC, where a lot of loan risk has been moved into markets, and given the strength of consumer and commercial balance sheets in the aggregate coming into this downturn, 
And given the soft landing that we see coming, we do not anticipate loan quality data to show material deterioration in this cycle. All right, on to our second thing, top geopolitical risks. And we often remind our clients that geopolitical risk developments generally do not impact markets all that much, except, except when they materially affect supply and demand of key goods or services. Moreover, many perceived risks that fall into this category tend to be tail events. Doesn't mean that they can't impact markets. In many instances, potential outcomes could significantly alter the course of history. It's just that the probability of these events occurring tend to be very low. So it's hard to invest profitably around these prospects. That said, the collection of geopolitical risks that are on the radar at the moment is as formidable as any time I can think of. This is undoubtedly a function of a world that is more interconnected than ever, yet bipolar, if not multipolar, in its power structure. Technology, of course, is fueling that interconnectedness, and it's running far ahead of government's ability to control it. So that has brought us closer together for good and bad. Meanwhile, the U.S. and China continue to grapple for global leadership, while a handful of rogue states have brought unwelcome disruption. Ian Bremmer of the Eurasia Group goes as far to say that we live in a G0 world, a world without global leadership. Mr. Bremmer is decidedly downbeaten his yearly tabulation of top risks, noting that three wars, Russia-Ukraine, Israel-Hamas, and the U.S. versus itself, are raging with prospects of achieving sustainable peace in any of those wars, not remotely close, according to Mr. Bremmer. Happy New Year. But let's bring this back to markets starting, as we often do, with oil. The world in general, and Europe in particular, have adjusted reasonably well to the disruption in distribution caused by the Russian-Ukrainian war. We are not prepared, however, for production or distribution disruption that could come from an escalation of war in the Middle East. That escalation could affect more than just oil if it leads to shipping disruption in the Red Sea, for which an estimated 10 to 15% of global trade flows. In risk markets, we also worry about China, where it's an ambitious, to say the least, attempt to fundamentally alter the course of its economy has introduced significant risk into global economic growth. Mr. Bremer observes that consolidation of power at the top has snuffed out policy debate and animal spirits, just as China's past growth engines have been exhausted, and there is little the government will do to reverse either trend. Bloomberg consensus has taken 2024. China estimated growth down to 4.5% from 5% back in May of 2023. It's quite a fall from the 8.4% averaged annually for the past 20 years. A lot of this is factored into subpotential growth in the developed world expected for 2024, but for now, that growth, the consensus view is 2.6%, is still expected to be positive. All right, on to our third thing. KBRA Analytics updated default forecast. Joining me today is Eric Rosenthal, who generates our forecast as part of his work with KBRA DLD, our direct lending news and analytical platform. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Van, for having me back on the podcast. So, Eric, since the last time we talked, the soft landing narrative has taken root, where inflation continues to reduce towards target, economic growth remains buoyant, and the labor market tight. And that's kept investors' sentiment, and probably more importantly, liquidity, relatively upbeat. Is your bottoms-up default forecast syncing up with this view? For high yield, this is exactly what I'm seeing and why we believe the default rate on a dollar basis finishes slightly lower in 2024 than in 2023. 
Six months ago, our default radar red list stood at 44 billion with 24 issuers, and now we're down to 33 billion with just 19 issuers. So let's go back to that default radar and maybe an explanation of that. Give us a 30 second description of what that is and how it feeds into your bottoms up approach. Definitely. Our default radar identifies the most troublesome credits for potential defaults. Credits are flagged red or orange, depending upon the severity of the situation, with the most worrisome deemed red. We believe secondary bid levels are the most predictive for determining potential defaults, but other factors such as market news, ratings, maturity, and industry are examined. And these high-yield syndicated loan and also direct lending default radar borrowers, they're published in our monthly report. So great, we'll be on the lookout for that. I noticed in your press release earlier this week, you're calling for syndicated loan default volume in 2024 to exceed that of high yield by the largest ever margin. What's going on between those two markets? Sure. So we are forecasting roughly 60 billion of syndicated loan defaults versus approximately 39 billion for high yield for 2024. Now, if you compare that to last year, that translates into an increase of about 8 billion for loans, but a decrease of 5 billion for high yield. Loan default volumes have surpassed high yield for three consecutive years. And one of the reasons we believe this occurs again in 2024 pertains to credit quality. There is a notably higher portion of issuers that are rated B or lower in syndicated loans compared with high yield. The bigger reason, though, that centers on the default radar. So how do we think about the default radar numbers? Right. So for loans, we've got $53 billion in outstandings, and that's roughly $20 billion more than high yield on our red list. From account perspective, there are 46 loan companies compared with the 19 I mentioned before for high yield. Now, if we extend to the orange list, there are another 85 loan borrowers versus just 37 for high yield. So essentially, there are more than two times as many loan issuers on our default radar. And this ties back to why we expect syndicated loans to surpass high yield in 2024 and by a wide margin. I got it. All right, so the 3% high yield default forecast by volume is below consensus and even the long-term average. Is there any path to a higher rate, like 5%? So it's not impossible, but it is highly unlikely because to reach 5%, that requires 65 billion of default volume, meaning we're talking about a 20 billion jump from 2023. Now recall there were some sizable issuers last year that did propel the numbers, such as Carvana, Diamond Sports, Legato, and SVB. Now, there are still some big issuers that are projected to default in 2024 via distressed debt exchanges that should propel the volume, such as Lumen. But essentially, to hit that 5% you were talking about, you need, I would say, at least two of Bausch, Dish, or Community Health to file for bankruptcy, coupled with the macro environment uh, to worsen imminently. And then when you factor in that BAML's distress ratio, which looks at spreads over 1,000 basis points, is at its lowest level since May 2022. I'd say a 5% high yield default rate seems about as likely as your Eagles defense starting to morph into the 85 Bears. Whoa, I see what you did there. You put all of this in a language I unfortunately understand. So speaking of distressing situations like the Eagles defense, you mentioned distressed debt exchanges. Is that something you see continuing in 2024? Hey, at least your team is still in it. My squad was done four offensive plays into the season. It was a good four plays. Yeah, it was great. But as to the distressed debt exchanges... We believe this continues to play a huge role in producing loan default volume and contributes to the anticipated 4% rate for 2024. What is interesting is that from 2008 through 2018, this source of defaults accounted for just 8% of the loan total. Over the past five years, distressed debt exchanges, they comprise 32% of the volume. And furthermore, if you go to the second half of last year, more than half of the default amount involved distressed debt exchanges. 
We've already seen Travelport and Resolute Investment Managers complete sizable ones in 2024, and more are on the way. All right. Thanks for all of that. Now, remind our listeners where they can find out more information. Sure. So we publish on a monthly basis, as well as weekly default commentary, plus real-time default stories. And you can find this on our website at dld.kbraanalytics.com. Perfect. Eric, thanks for joining us today, and we'll look for your updates in the future. Perfect. Thanks for having me again, Van. Take care. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, the rise in problem loans at banks. It bears watching, but it's a long way away from being meaningful. Two, geopolitical risks. Watch the Middle East for an impact on oil and shipping. And three, KBRA Analytics default forecast. We believe it's going to be below consensus. As always, thanks for joining. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our ratings reports and our latest research. We'll see you next week. Hello, listeners. Join me, Van Hesser, KBRA's chief strategist for in-depth conversations with credit experts in my new monthly podcast, Leading Voices in Credit, where I'll interview market professionals on the latest trends in credit markets. That's Leading Voices in Credit with Van Hesser. Subscribe now.